Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kellen, there's a lot of debate or talk, I should say, in the collapse community amongst collapse-aware people about when will collapse happen. Of course, there's this discussion of the fact that it's already happening. Some people still think of it more as uh, not necessarily an event, but a very short time frame when um, it all hits the fan and um, it, it all happens relatively quickly. Other people think it's going to be really far out. We've got decades and decades, you know, looking at like 2080 and 2100 as the time frame when things get really bad. I tend to be somewhere in the middle where, yes, I do think that things will progress quickly, but that not necessarily that, uh, you know, humanity is doomed within the next five years. We've discussed this, of course, at length uh, at different points throughout the podcast. But the reason to bring it up is because what's interesting is to consider as collapse progresses, who's going to lead us? At what points uh, will I be at in my own journey? How old will I be? How old will my children be or my parents? I think in today's episode, we wanted to talk about the demographic that's likely going to be at sort of the prime age in their careers, in politics, in really deciding how we react to this challenge in the coming decades, you know, between the years of 2030 and 2060. Yeah, some of the issues that we talk about, especially when it comes to like climate change, has an effect on the planet and, you know, the, the global ecosystem, the environment. So I think I saw since 1970, we've lost 70% of wildlife populations. <laughs> Unbelievable. And you think of all the deforestation and all the things that are happening there, like, that's a major impact. But this podcast is about societal collapse, meaning societies, civilizations, people. And so I think understanding not only who's going to be experiencing collapse as it gets worse, but also trying to anticipate how will they react to it? What is their outlook at, on life? You know, how uh, a couple decades from now, who's going to be leading us? through the challenges of collapse, who's going to be driving innovations to try to save us? Uh, how prepared will people be? All of that kind of points us back to understanding the outlook of younger generations. Um, because, you know, like you said, people have different 
timelines for what they expect with collapse. And although there might be some big drops along the way, it's likely going to take decades. So anyways, I, I, I'm just trying to back up what you're saying here. I think this is an extremely important thing for us to understand. Yeah. So as an introduction, uh, I think that was served the purpose. We are going to be speaking about basically young adults, Gen Z-ish, uh, and their outlook on the future. You know, I know that a lot of people who are optimistic about the future view the youth as the answer to so many of our problems. As a matter of fact, I have a good friend um, who, when I first introduced her to the podcast, her sort of rebuttal to me was, I think that the youth are going to save us. And, you know, I had to respect that response because, yeah, in a lot of ways, there are so many ways in which young kids are understanding the problems in a way that I never did growing up. They're paying attention, right? And we'll, we'll get into that here in the episode. I don't remember uh, hearing talk about climate change in high school. And if I did, it was mostly being mocked. That may not be the experience of everyone my age, but that was my experience growing up. And I've talked to this friend again since, and, and she's, uh, as she's listened more to the podcast, she said that she tends to find herself agreeing and, and realizing that it may be too late for uh, the youth to make the change that needs to be made in order to save us from collapse, and that that's not in their power. But I do think it is fair to say that decisions that they make, the upbringing that they have, and their outlook on the future will greatly determine or change the course of what can happen and how it happens in the future, how we react, what policies are put in place. And so I guess with that, Kellen, let's talk about uh, some of the studies and polls that have been done about uh, about the way that young adults are feeling. Great. And as we dive into this, we will be sharing a lot of numbers. I do want to just say there are all sorts of conflicting reports out there about how teenagers and young adults feel about the future. And that's because, you know, that's expected since different polls reach different populations with different parameters and they ask questions in different ways, right? Like it's, of course, you're going to get different results. Um, but overwhelmingly, uh, there is kind of a consensus in trying to determine the outlook of these younger populations. Another thing that I think is worth pointing out you might hear us refer to the different generations and sometimes I get mixed up on those. So just really quickly to define those, you know, we've got boomers and boomers consist of anyone who was born from 1955 to 1964. So here we are at the beginning of 2023, right? But just going up through 2022, essentially anyone who's 59 to 68 years old right now is a boomer, give or take a year. Gen X is anyone born 1965 to 1980. And so give or take a year, anyone who's 43 to 58 years old. Millennials were born 1981 to 1996. Current ages, 27 to 42. So Corey, you and I are millennials. Right smack dab in the center. Right. And then there's Gen Z, sometimes called Zoomers. Born anywhere between 1997 and 2012. So give or take a year, current age would be anyone who's 11 to 26. And by the way, I don't actually know. I haven't looked up what the next generation is called. I don't even know who determines what the parameters for these different terms are. But that's just common terminology. And at least, Kellen, from the studies that I did that I read, it seemed like most of the ages when they determined what a, a young adult was, it wasn't necessarily broken apart by generation. They didn't just pull Gen Z or just millennials. It seems like it was often broke down but by like ages 16 to 24 or maybe 16 or 18 to 34. So some of the numbers that I know we'll be reading today might have some difference in the ranges and we'll try and specify when that's the case. But, you know, if it's if it's 16 to 34, that that does leak into our age. You and I are 33. But yeah, just keep that in mind. We're talking about young people typically in the late millennial through the Zoomer time frame. Okay, so let's try something for a moment, Corey. 
imagine <laughs> that you aren't a millennial, uh, that instead you're part of Gen Z, meaning that you didn't get to have this incredible childhood in the 90s. <laughs> I didn't get the cassette tapes and the advent of DVD players. <laughs> I feel like the 90s were fantastic. Wonderful times. Yeah, uh, it, it really was pretty incredible. Um, but again, the parameters for Gen Z, anyone born 1997 to 2012. So your childhood is going to be in the 2000s. And that's a pretty big range, right? We're talking about the difference of someone being four years old on 9-11 and somebody who was born 11 years after 9-11. Right. But if you land somewhere within there, just consider what you have seen during your formative years as you've been growing up. So, for example, during your life, you've been hearing a lot about climate change. Uh, you've been hearing things about how by 2030, we're going to be reaching these tipping points that will cause irreversible catastrophe You've seen Greta Thunberg or Thunberg, however you say it, uh, kind of as this icon talking about how doomed we are with climate change. Um, you've experienced the Great Recession and seen all of the political instability from that and some would argue another recession since then. And many of them witnessed their parents losing their homes, losing their jobs and experiencing the traumatic economic losses that came with it. Right. You have experienced a global pandemic, which no other generation had, right? Not, not since over a century ago. You've seen historic inflation and a, a historic decrease in buying power. You've been told that AI will likely replace 20 to 40% of jobs. You've seen a huge increase in school shootings. Uh, you've seen a lot of conflict around, uh, you know, racial injustice, a lot of uh, social issues. You've been involved in this compulsive use of smartphones and social media and uh, likely pornography. All of those have been on the rise in during this time frame. You've seen really intense political polarization. Uh, think of who you've seen from, from if you're Gen Z, from as old as you actually recognized who the president was, think of uh, some of what you've seen in the political arena. You've seen threats of war and you've seen war taking place. You've seen really extreme natural disasters that seem to be increasing. And the media that you consume... Uh, seems to be obsessed with this idea of apocalypse and, and apo apocalyptic scenarios. You've got, you know, the Hunger Games uh, and the Divergent series and The Walking Dead and Last of Us and Euphoria and, and all this popular content that is fueling this uh, kind of hopelessness. So, all of that is what has consisted of your formative years. Um, how do you think that's going to impact the way that you view life? Yeah, I think what hits me the strongest is that we all probably think in terms of what's normal, right? Back to the good old days. And the older you are, the gooder the good old days were. And for Gen Z, um, they might have their version of the good old days, right? But all of those things that you just mentioned just grew up as normal for them. Even for you and I, who are 33 years old, you know, smartphones, that was a, that was a revolution. We watched that happen, a technological advancement, right? For most of Gen Z, or probably all of Gen Z, it's just been a part of life from their infancy. They probably grew up with their parents filming everything that they did and posting it all over social media. That was not something I grew up with. And so that sense of normalcy in each one of those things that you just talked about does make it feel like, of course, that population of people is going to be more likely 
to view the future as negative because what they have known, what they have seen is negative. And we can make all sorts of assumptions about that, right? But let's actually dive into the data. Great. Well, let's start with the idea of climate change. So we're going to kind of go through some different categories and studies that have been done from polls based on how young people feel in these different categories. Now, when it comes to climate change, I'm going to quote a study from 2021. It was done uh, a poll of 10,000 young people aged 16 to 24 in 10 different countries. And this was in response to or in regards to their thoughts of the future regarding climate change. So here's some of the findings. Respondents were worried about climate change with 59% saying they were very or extremely worried, 84% at least moderately worried. Again, in my youth, uh, I would have been part of the other 16% that was like, I don't know and I don't care. So it goes on to say that over 50% felt sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and guilty. And over 45%, this is the one that feels wild to me, said their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily life and functioning. So you've got nearly half of these kids, 10,000 that responded, aged 16 to 24, saying that climate change and the worry about climate change affected them daily and in some cases even their ability to function. And then over half of the respondents reported feeling that humanity is doomed. And that last part is in quotes, that humanity is doomed. So I found a really interesting article that sounds like it pulled from much of the same data. You know, the the actual scholarly article, when I go look at the source, is called Climate Anxiety in Children and Young People and Their Beliefs About Government Responses to Climate Change, a Global Survey. What's interesting about at least this study or this data that I saw that, like I said, is very comparable, is that the averages for those that felt either extremely worried or very worried about climate change were especially high in the global south. So in the Philippines, 84% of youths were extremely or very worried. 78% in India, 77% in Brazil. And so I know some of the studies and numbers that we'll be talking about are focused on young people in the U.S., but this is interesting to me that climate change is having a negative impact on, like you said, daily functioning across the globe. I was reading through a lot of studies. I'll share just a a couple of others. One where they surveyed over 500 people, 16 to 24 in the UK. This was in 2020. They found that 52% worried about the lack of action on climate change. And then yet another bit of research, this was a poll that was done in 2019 of individuals 18 to 29 years old. They found that a third said climate change should be a factor in a couple's decision about whether to have children. Yeah, when it comes to having children, I saw a bunch of talk around that as well. That This idea that there was a study done that showed that young people are not wanting to have less children. It's not about desire to have children. The number of children that were desired stayed pretty consistently over the last several decades. What has changed is the willingness to have children. Uh, the nerves about being able to care for them financially and just about concerns about climate change and other factors um, that would create a negative experience. Yeah, so clearly climate change is having an impact on the way that young people view the world. I saw one chart, this is from Statista, and it broke out the way that um, teenagers view climate change And categorized it by emotions. And so 57% say they feel afraid. And 52% say they feel angry. 43% helpless. 42% guilty. And you get 54% that say they're motivated. They want to make a positive impact. But only 29% shared feeling optimistic. And just 20% were uninterested. So it's something that they care about. They're motivated to make a difference, but there's all of that fear, anger, helplessness, guilt associated. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I had seen uh, pretty much every study was negative, though I did come across one article that the title basically was saying that the youth are surprisingly optimistic, according to a UN study that was done in 2021. 
But then I get into the article and I start reading it, and more than half of it is still discussing the ways in which kids were viewing the future pessimistically. It talked about them seeing and understanding the issues um, and viewing them very seriously and realistically. But their view was that if any change was to be made, it was going to have to be made by their generation. So it goes along with what you were saying. There's this core group that feels like determined to make a difference, but it seemed a little misleading to title the article the way that they did um, because it wasn't optimism that the, that the youth were showing. Um, the only positives that it spoke about were mostly that people were saying that today is better than it was for our parents or our grandparents in regards to certain things like healthcare and science and technology. And while that may be true, it doesn't mean that they were necessarily optimistic about what the future was going to be like. You can say today was better than yesterday, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to be good. And most youth in the way they were answering these polls were still saying we're scared for the future. So you can imagine what that does to a global society when, you know, the upcoming generation is fearful about the future and, and feels a sense of doom. So let's move on then to their outlook on a few other things. When you look at the economic situation and how financially optimistic young people are. A recent survey from Fidelity, they surveyed 2,600 adults between 18 to 35 years old and found that 45%, quote, don't see a point in saving until things return to normal. Wow. Again, that's almost almost half of people feeling that way. Yeah, and, and the article that was discussing this survey talked about how 18 to 35 year olds instead are often choosing to just go spend their money, like feeling like it's pointless to save things are crazy. So I'm just going to go enjoy. I'm going to go to concerts and get good food and travel, which to me is interesting because as I've learned about collapse and my fears about the future have increased, it makes me want to save my money more than ever. Right. It's the opposite in most, for, for most cases, for most reasons. Right. And you and I fit within the demographic that was surveyed here. Another one that was interesting. And Kellen, if I might step in really quick, I wonder if that's due to understanding what causes collapse, right? And how, how collapse unfolds. These respondents aren't necessarily thinking about collapse in general, but they're thinking about how difficult the future is going to be. And maybe not thinking about this long grind of, um, economic difficulty and the importance of having savings, right? They're thinking more of pandemics and things that cause immediate like upheaval, right? They're also seeing the government try and like help financially. Here's 1200 bucks. Here's a suspension of your rent or your mortgage or your student loan payments. And I wonder if that's kind of influencing this idea that like if there's financial burdens or financial problems, the government will just kind of aid in that. But obviously that's not a good long-term crutch. Yeah. Feeling kind of propped up or having this safety net, I can see where that definitely would influence. And and that's also not to say that like people didn't suffer financially during the pandemic because the government gave us 1200 bucks. 1200 bucks is nothing in the in the grand scheme of things and how much people owed and how much financial pain there was. Um, but it is, it's just a curious stat to think about why half of people would think that saving isn't necessary. Well, another poll of a similar demographic here found that 48% say they are unable to move out of their parents' homes due to financial challenges. That's a lot of people living at home. Yeah. And although I've seen varying numbers, I mean, this one says 48%, which is a lot, almost half. That coincides with uh, with other numbers that I've seen. There's been more and more talk about this as we've seen inflation, as we've seen interest rates rise. In recent years, there are so many people who are at a stage of life in which it would have, in previous years, been normal for them to move into a home, but they can't. They're either, like this one says, stuck at their parents' house, or they're perpetually renting Maybe they can get into a, a, a condo or a townhome, but to 
purchase a traditional home as past generations would have seems impossible. It seems like even buying townhomes at this point is becoming out of reach for so many first-time home buyers. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, sort of along that same vein, I have some interesting numbers about the way that young people are feeling about capitalism. So a study was done uh, in 2019. This study, um, they segmented it by age. So for adults, um, those, I believe it was older than 34, they had a 61% favorable view of capitalism and a 36% negative view of capitalism. So for older adults, it was skewing towards positive thinking about capitalism. Two years later, in 2021, they asked that, uh, they did another poll of the same ages and found that adults had shifted downward slightly to a 57% favorable view of capitalism and the negative number stayed the same. So favorability dropped just a couple of percentage points. In young adults though, aged 18 to 34, in 2019, it was 58 versus 38%. So 58 favorable of capitalism, 38 negative. And that shifted in 2021 to 49 positive and 46 negative. So that is a massive shift in the favorability rating of capitalism. You know, it went from a 20 point gap to a three point gap in that favorability in just two years. And then narrowing that down further to just those aged 18 to 24 instead of 18 to 34, the numbers completely flip because only 42% view capitalism positively and 58% view it negatively. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and it's interesting because the other numbers, they didn't add up to 100. 58 and 38, 61 and 36, there was always a, a little gap, which was probably just left for people who weren't really sure. But with this one, 42 and 58, it was 100%. Either you approved or you disapproved of capitalism. And the younger you go, the more likely you are to disapprove of capitalism, which I find fascinating uh, because those those differences aren't slight right? We have like a complete reversal and we find that youth are more likely to not just shy away from capitalism, but to have a more favorable view of socialism or even communism. And there is so much more to go into there, right? Entire episodes and studies to be done on that portion of things. I've seen articles talking about why uh, a, a anti-capitalist revolution isn't going to happen, at least not soon. Um, youth might sway away from capitalism, but it doesn't mean that they're ready to act against it, that type of thing. But just looking at those numbers, um, I find that fascinating. Now, here's one stat that, that really piqued my interest. I'm going to read it from the article. It says, and more specifically, young Republicans have seen real movement in the past two years. In 2019, 81% of Republicans and GOP leaners aged 18 to 34, had a positive view of capitalism. Today, that number has fallen to 66%. So it dropped from 81% to 66%, meaning that over a third of Republican youth have a negative view of capitalism. It then notes that among Republicans 35 and older, views haven't shifted substantially. So again, this is another case in point that it's among younger people that those ideas are changing. And assuming that trend continues, it's going to be so fascinating to watch as those generations get older, as they're more involved 
in the decision making in creating policies as the general population more filled with those voters is being swayed by those opinions what will that look like for the system that we operate under and you know for me frankly th- these numbers were fascinating uh, to see just be- just because the way i grew up right socialism was a bad word <laughs> it was it was like it was like a dirty word um to think at you know and it wasn't this way back then but to think that um you know there were 40% of people or whatever that were favorable towards it right or that there were 58% of youth that were against capitalism that just that that was never have occurred to me back then and to hear that now um to realize how hated capitalism has become as people understand and see what it's doing is really interesting a couple other stats from that. So it says uh, 56% of younger Republicans say the government should pursue policies that reduce the wealth gap. So over half of young Republicans want the wealth gap um, narrowed and by the government, which is so interesting because the GOP is generally very anti-government regulation and oversight. And that was up from just 40% two years ago. So another huge leap in the amount of people, Republicans specifically saying, we want to see the wealth gap decreased which one thing that might be strongly influencing that is the fact that just in recent years the wealth gap has increased so much right so i think it's logical to to see that kind of a shift yeah watching uh jeff bezos and elon musk and mark zuckerberg you know increase their wealth by tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in like a two-year span has certainly swayed some of those opinions. And that's just a, a great example of late-stage capitalism where the wealthy become so obscenely wealthy that they, they can't operate under a status quo with the consent of the people, right? And so if capitalism is going to continue, it's going to do so against the desires of people. It's just about whether or not they're willing to make any effort or changes um, in order to to achieve their goals. And the last stat says only 48% of American women view capitalism in a positive light, down from 51% two years ago. So again, interesting. This was not just youth. This was all women in America. Um, less than half view capitalism positively. All right. So I feel like those numbers that you shared about capitalism, and as we went through uh, feelings on on the future of the economic system, is a good segue into politics. A couple of studies that I looked at that were really recent, just just published in 2022, gave me some very interesting insights. One of them is a national poll. They surveyed 2,631 Americans, age 18 to 29. This was done by the Harvard Institute of Politics. They found 64% of young Americans have more fear than hope about the future of democracy in America. Like more fear than hope, right? Not, not just on the fence, not knowing which direction things are going to go, but like they seem to think it's more likely democracy won't exist in the future. Yeah. I saw similar numbers under a slightly different question, not so much about if democracy would continue, but if democracy was the right choice if democracy was all it was cracked up to be and if we should even be a democracy, which, I mean, we're a republic, but it, the idea of democracy in general. Well, another study, uh, this was just really recently, the survey was done in November of 2022. There were over 2,000 respondents, age 18 to 29. They found that 55% say the country is going in the wrong direction. And only 16% believe it's on the right track. To me, that one's scary. Not that it's surprising, right? I'd probably fall within that same uh, sentiment. But if you've got the majority of this demographic feeling like things are going in the wrong direction in our country, that tells me uh, there's going to be a lot of appetite for change. Yeah, 16%. That's what, one in eight or something? That is, that's not good. (laughs) 
So I saw some surveys uh, somewhat in the same realm around trust in government. So since 1972, um, there have been polls regarding how much people trust the government. So they're asked basically if they trust the government always or most of the time. In 1972, it was about half of respondents that would say yes. And that was across all demographics age-wise. In previous decades, that has decreased um, by about half with it now being around 25% of people saying they trust the government. There is, however, a significant difference uh, based on the generations. So 28% of Gen X, 25% of millennials, and only 17% of Gen Z in 2021 trusted the government. So there was an 11-point gap between the trust um, in Gen X and Gen Z. And then from 2020 to 2021, most generations' trust in the government increased slightly. I guess that means older people approved more of how the pandemic was handled, while Gen Z fell from 19% down to 17%. And they were the only group to fall in the level of trust except for the silent generation, which fell 1%. And this trend, um, we're not going to go into specific numbers, but it goes on and on, right? Um, there's talk of like military enlistment and how the military is really struggling to get youth to join the military. We talked about birth rates declining a bit. Um, over a third of respondents in one survey of youth said they believe we'll have a civil war in the U.S. One in three feeling confident that there will be a civil war, civil conflict. That's so many. Like that one in three. <laughs> wow. It's interesting that you talk about trust because uh, as I was going through, I actually took a screenshot, a graph, a visual in which they looked at uh, youth ages 18 to 29 and their levels of trust regarding a number of different topics or, or entities. They could select either trust, neither or distrust. And so the way this graphic is lined out, you get to see the, the way it all stacks up and ranks. So what youth trust the least is large corporations, only 11%. What they trust second least, Congress. Oh, wow. Only 20% said they trust Congress. Which is basically run by large corporations. <laughs> Next, only 23% said they trust major news media. And tied with that, only 23% trust the Republican Party. Oh, wow. Only 30% trust the president. Only 30% trust the Democratic Party. Anyways, I could go through all these. What they say they trust the most, 63% say they trust scientific research. And 55% say they trust peers and neighbors. And look, this, frankly, this is where the, if there is any hope to be had in the youth of today, right? It's in that they're viewing it correctly. It seems like for the most part, they're not being deceived. They see things clearly. Do they have the power to change it? Well, that is up for debate. That's a totally different topic. But that there is this sort of determination this realization that stuff is messed up. The older generations suck. They brought, they, they got us into this. It's <laughs> going to be up to us to, to do anything. Um, at least there's that. Uh, now I know there's, there's again, so many challenges to what they're going to be able to do, what kind of changes they're going to be able to make, what kind of changes we can make, right? Like with some of the things you mentioned with social media and the distractions is there going to be any actual momentum ever built or will we just kind of fizzle and follow the status quo into oblivion? I don't know, but it's, it's at least good to see the responses to things like that and that their trust is put and not put in the correct places. Well, when you say the correct places, I think, uh, you feel like you trust their judgment. Um, uh, and, and I think I would agree with that. That said, I wish, I wish that we had all this trust in our nation, in our government. Um, I don't think it's merited, which is why I think the trust isn't there. 
but I wish it was and that we could like the correct place to have our trust. If you look at it that way is all these big, powerful entities, the government and large corporations. But as it stands, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of trust that's deserved there. Okay. So I know our heads are just spinning with all these numbers, but I think it's proving a very uh, good point as we look at the outlook of youth. The last few numbers to share here that are obviously influenced by all the other factors we've talked about relate to mental health. From the 10-year period between 2007 and 2017, the CDC reported that suicide was Gen Z's second leading cause of death with a 56% increase, which to me is so tragic. Um, A study from Cigna found 91% of Gen Z's reported feeling stress. 98% say they feel burned out. Another study by a group called Stress in America found 62% of women, 51% of men ages 18 to 34 were completely overwhelmed by stress. And one Harvard poll claimed that nearly half of Gen Z suffers from depression requiring clinical treatment. And, and even reading those stats now, after having already read through the research before, it's just so sobering to think that's the state of like, you, you would hope that youth, children and teenagers, young adults, like they should be the happiest and the, the mental health there is just deteriorating and it's having such negative impacts. To me, it's tragic. Well, and it's really no wonder when you consider everything else that we've talked about that they're dealing with, right? That their understanding about the world from such an early age. Uh, yeah, it's no wonder that mental health is suffering as a result. All right. So to summarize at least the numbers that we've talked about, it's pretty bleak. The way that Gen Z in particular, or or young adults, if you're including millennials, um, the way that they view the future in regards to climate change, in regards to the economic situation, in regards to politics, uh, it kind of just across the board. So with that, Corey, I've got just a few questions that I'd like to ask you. And, and I think all of us understand, like, this is just your opinion. But first of all, you look at um, past generations. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, folks that went through like the Great Depression and World War One and World War Two and all these big, heavy things. And yet they seemed to fare better. They, they didn't seem to have quite such negative impacts on their outlook on life, nor on their mental health. Some would argue what they went through is much harder than what young people are going through today. And so why do you feel like it's turning out worse for young people today? So I think um, a big piece of that question is around like their mental health, right? The way that they're responding to the trials. And part of me on one hand wonders if it's just that mental health is less of a taboo topic today than it was 60, 70, 80 years ago. You know, I think of of people who lived through the Great Depression and World War II and these terrible times likely suffered greatly from mental health issues, from PTSD, but it wasn't acknowledged. Uh, PTSD wasn't even an observable condition, right? Which, yeah, I do want to acknowledge that. Like, those were very real trials that those generations went through. They didn't come out of it just feeling so happy about everything. But uh, the perception, at least, is that generally they were much more resilient. Uh, They came out of it stronger on average, whereas the trials that are being faced by young people today, they're not coming out of it stronger. Yeah, and I think that 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 part of it is just a result of the the systems that they're in, right? The environment. Um, we've talked in the past about how, for example, after World War II and the Great Depression, they were enabled to improve society because we were in the midst of this huge technological um, boom. We've just discovered all this oil in the U.S. We were the the world's leader in in oil production, we were able to create 
um, all of these programs that allowed for jobs to be created. There, there was a sense of optimism because the systems in place allowed for improvement. I think today, when we refer to late stage capitalism, like it's it's just the youth are are seeing that there's no escaping this. There is no new deal that can be put in place that's going to fix things for the next hundred years until it can be, until it can become the next generation's problem. Right? That's my opinion, at least. It's just that the the outlook is what we see in this podcast, and it's that. There is no changing the course of our future, whereas that may not have been the case or wasn't the case for past generations. Yeah, I think that's very valid. And it actually kind of leads into the next question. So I'll state the question, but also give a little more context as well. Essentially, the question is, does talking about the direction that we're going in with youth result in you know empowering them or does it result in powerlessness and fatalism? Some of what you talked about just barely is is feeling like there's no getting out of this, that we're kind of doomed. Um, and I think that's a lot of the reason why we see youth so depressed and falling into despair and feeling totally burned out. And so some would claim that we are burdening the, the younger generations when we deliver this kind of news to them. Uh, that that we shouldn't burden them because we're doing them harm. On the other hand, if we wait until people are older, they're much less likely to accept these ideas. And are we, you know, if if we're kind of shielding even young people from this information, are we doing them a disservice by keeping them in ignorance? Yeah, I'm definitely not like a a professional or an expert to be able to answer what the right what the right answer is but i personally feel like everything should be done age appropriately no matter what the message is that you're trying to convey right the way you talk to a six-year-old versus a 12-year-old versus an 18-year-old are all going to be very different but i also think that that completely depends on the person some people react you know you think of greta thunberg and the what she's done with the information right it's empowered her to dedicate her life to striving to bring attention to the issues. Somebody else, um, it could completely shut them down. So I think on a, on a personal level, for example, as an adult speaking with your own children, it's about knowing them and understanding them and, and knowing what they can and can't handle and, and talking to them accordingly as a society. I think on a whole, it's neither right to try and hide information from our youth until they hit a certain age, you know, uh, but it's also not right necessarily to shove it in their face and down their throats. Um, I think very clear messaging needs to be had around what can and can't be done, what the purposes are for acting, because the difference between 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius and 3 degrees and 4 degrees Celsius are immense, right, when we talk about global warming. Um, and so if there's any chance that we can make changes to keep ourselves at two degrees rather than to go to three degrees, then that absolutely 100% should be fought for and policy should be made and, and we should dedicate our lives to making sure that that takes place. Fighting fascism is something that, uh, should 100% happen and will make a difference in what the future is like. Will it stop collapse? Not necessarily. No, it won't. But I'd rather go through a collapse without fascism than go through collapse with fascism, right? So, like, there's a bettering of conditions. And I think that um, being clear, not saying you can save the world, but that you can make a big difference in it is is a important distinction. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't have much else to say beyond what you've already said. In fact, uh, some of what you said answered other questions that I had for you. I think you did a really good job of, of giving a thoughtful response on that. As I hear you talk about this and as I think about everything that we've shared in this episode, I can't help but think of the fact that some of our listeners who have reached out to us, I don't think it's that many, but some have reached out saying, hey, I am like 17 years old. I'm 18 years old. Like I, I feel 
super stressed about the future. And I think the last thing that we want to do is make anyone's life worse with this information. Our hope is to make lives better. And so more than anything, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is, is a reminder that like this information, although it can be depressing, um, if we look at it in the right light, it can also be empowering. We're not going to be caught off guard by what's coming our way. We can prepare now. We can take the steps to become mentally resilient, physically resilient, to be able to have a much better future than we would without this information. I think it's also a good reminder that like being kind to other people through all this, we can have a positive impact. We can find ways to help other people through it. That can be extremely fulfilling. And so there is this like hopelessness that we're seeing with the younger generation about the direction that things are going on a macro scale. But on a micro scale, like we still have so much that we can do to help ourselves, to help our families. And I hope reading between the lines or sifting through the despair and all of this, we can we can pull out hope and we can take action in a positive way. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.